Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Dick It Happened Here, a podcast about it happening somewhere else. Uh, you know, okay. The theme <laughs> the theme of this show has gone slightly slightly off the rails since it was first conceived. However, comma, I, d- I do think this is something that is very important to talk about, which is getting some more sort of background information and an understanding of what the history of sort of labor and general protest is in China as we look at the certain the sort of current protest wave that is going on there. And with me to talk about this is Eli Friedman, who teaches at Cornell University and is the author of the book The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. So Eli, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to talk with you about this. Um partially because I think Okay, so in in so far as you've gotten sort of mainstream coverage of it, there's been a lot of focus. Um, in in, in, ter- in terms of the sort of current wave of protests, there's been a lot of focus on like the A4 paper stuff, and people sort of, you know, hanging signs up. And as as the coverage has gone on, there's been a lot less about the Foxconn stuff. There's been a lot less about. The broader trajectory of what protests has looked like in China in the last 20 years, as everyone sort of like immediately reaches back for their stock Tiananmen comparisons, which <laughs> I don't think are very good. Or wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I guess we could in some sense start with Tiananmen because I think this is this is has nothing really to do with it, but 
I, I guess we could start with why why are the champion comparisons bad and why is everyone still reaching for them 30 years later yeah i mean there there's maybe a couple reasons why so um the, uh, the 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 unsympathetic take on it is that you have a lot of people outside of china particularly in the united states who uh hope for things to go poorly <laughs> In China, yeah. as part of our <laughs> imperial competition, and yeah. so uh, 1989 was uh, a bad year for China, uh, whichever side of of that movement you you were on, uh, and so they they believe that it heralds you know the the downfall of the Communist Party, and and you know therefore America can march into the rest of the century uh, without any real competitors. So that that is a real thing, right? Um, and. The, I think the somewhat more sympathetic uh, take on this is that the Chinese government, and particularly under Xi Jinping, sets a ridiculously high standard for what qualifies as social stability, right? So minor deviations from um, absolute harmony as conceived of by the state, which means, you know, no street protests. It means relatively little dissent online. And to the extent that you do see forms of collective action, they remain pretty small scale and fractured. Um, and so when you see deviations from that, that suggests that, well, they've kind of lost control because they do want to maintain this, you know, absolute image of placidity. Um, and if we look at the whole sequence of events that led up to where we are now, I think we have to trace it back. Well, there, there's a bunch of things, but one of them is the Satong uh, Bridge protest, um, which is just a single person hanging banners off a bridge uh, in Beijing. Um, and a single person hanging banners or uh, holding signs in any other uh, big city around the world does not create that kind of uh, a stir, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're in Washington, D.C. or or you're in, in Berlin or, or Tokyo or whatever. And, you know, nobody cares, right? So that, but that just shows a little bit of a crack in the system. And so then people let their imaginations kind of run wild. Um, and we're clearly not in a 1989 situation r right now. It's not inconceivable that it would develop in that way in the future, um, at the same time, I, I don't think it's particularly likely for, for all sorts of reasons, and we can get into that if you want. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think, I don't know, one of the things that I've been looking at with these protests versus 1989, I, partially it's just the, the the sort of class composition is just very, very different. Like there are student protests, but it's it's they're, like these people, these, the students now like are not the 1989 students. Like this is just a, this is a very different sort of like it's it's a very different student body. It's a very different like the, the class composition of those people are different. The, the the experience that they've had in the Chinese system is very different. And then also, I think somewhat more interestingly is like it's it's not the same working class that showed up in 1989 because that class doesn't really exist anymore. And yeah, and I guess that that's another part of this that I think. I don't know. There is definitely extent to which these protests are weird in that it is like it's 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 a bunch of people in different places who are protesting about the same thing, which hasn't which, you know, hasn't really happened for a long time. But also like, I don't know, th there seems to be this reluctance to talk about the fact that there have been like not insignificant protests in the last 30 years, like especially in the 90s. There are these huge protests against 
sort of uh, like deindustrialization, like the destruction of sort of the Chinese welfare system. And I guess one of the things I'm interested, I don't know, in asking you more about is like, there's there's a kind of trajectory of what urban sort of protest has looked like and like as 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 the sort of like as the Chinese working class has like increasingly become a, a, a sort of migrant working class. And so, yeah, I guess we could jump off from there to also also, I guess, because it's the other thing is like Chinese cities are very different now than they were 30 years ago, which is a thing that is mm-hmm. both incredibly obvious and also like people don't really seem to understand very well. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. There's a lot in that question. Maybe we should circle back around uh, to the question of the class composition yeah. of the students and the workers today in comparison to 1989. But first, let's just talk a little bit about the sequence of labor protest over the past. In the, yeah, let's sorry, say the post- was, there was a lot of me going through stuff there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all all really important insights. Um, each deserving a little bit of their own attention. So, you know, after 1989, uh, there is this big divergence in the um, in in the opportunities that are afforded to the two constituent groups that were in Tiananmen Square and other places around China. So you have the students and you have the workers, right? And there's there's other people, but like the, the, that's the the sort of the, the social backbone of that movement. Uh, the students uh, basically get this deal with the state, which is uh, they demand compliance and political acquiescence in exchange for which they will enjoy a couple of uh, generations, a, a couple of decades of unbelievably fast growth. And if you are graduating with a degree from one of these uh, elite universities in Beijing or even not super elite universities in, in other cities, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to experience upward social mobility, that you'll be able to buy an apartment, that you know you will feel more materially secure than was the case for your parents, right? Um, I think that that deal is coming undone right now, which in part yeah. explains <laughs> the students that we see out in the street. Um, but in any event, that that certainly was the case for for you know for about 30 years after um, or at least you know 25 years after after Tiananmen. The workers who were in the square in 1989 had a, a almost diametrically opposed yeah. social trajectory <laughs> because immediately thereafter uh, they were subjected to a brutal regime of privatization, of dispossession, of theft of public property. They were thrown out of these jobs that they had believed they were going to have forever. It was called the Iron Rice Bowl. Um, one of the main architects of that was Jiang Zemin, who's just died. Uh, he along with Zhu Rongji. I saw. I saw. I saw a great quote where someone was like. This is basically China's George W. Bush, where everyone's remembering him yes. fondly because things are so bad now. But oh my god, this guy was awful! Like yeah, di- dying, mean, dying right now is maybe the best thing he ever did. Like it's yeah, oh god, and it, it it really is a testament to how bad things are now. But he is, I think, um, the most neoliberal anyway of China's leaders, yeah. more so than than Deng Xiaoping in some important ways. Uh, and so, you know, that old working class who was told that they were the masters of the nation, um, you know, under Jiang Zemin for, in the late 90s, they were just they they were they were just subjected to these real subsistence crises. And in response to that, actually, the largest mobilizations to have happened since 1989 occurred in in the late 90s and really the early 2000s. In some cases, you had these protest movements with many tens of thousands of people out in the street resisting privatization, resisting the theft of their pensions um, and and basically this you know private uh, profiteering and, and theft of public property, and, and and I think that even the protests that we've seen uh, in the last uh, a week or two 
um, are, are still not on the scale of those yeah. worker uprisings that we saw um, 20 years ago. Yeah, which I guess, you know, like p- part of the reason why we are where we are now is that those people lost. And, and I think that's been one of the other sort of themes of like Chinese protests is like, I mean, I, I think like like so, some of the local ones like win, but the large scale ones have kind of just been like, like really just been getting owned for the last like 20 yep. uh, really like 30 years like it's it's been kind of a bleak march and i mean i actually i, I want to circle back around a bit talk a bit more about the deindustrialization because i think this is a thing that like really is badly understood especially on the left um the the other thing i i wanted to talk about in 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 that is okay so you you have this massive wave of privatization you have this deindustrialization and can we talk a little bit also about how, like, for for the people for the people who held on in state-owned industries, what the sort of transformations that happened inside there was yep. like? Because I think that's also like not understood well. Yeah. So you have two processes. One is um, the uh, they talk about as, as smashing the iron rice bowl, right? And and that involves two processes. One is just unemployment. And there's been a lot of um, efforts to try to estimate how many people lost their jobs. It is very hard. A political scientist named uh, Dorothy Salinger wrote an article called Why It's Impossible to Know How Many Unemployed People There Are, or something to that effect. Um, But certainly tens of millions of people lost lost their jobs and were just kind of thrown out into the market. And it's worth remembering that they were thrown out into the market largely in regions where the market was not at all dynamic, right? So in the northeastern part of the country, which did not have the booming economy of Guangdong province or, you know, Jiangsu province or places like that. Um, so, so there were those people. You know, people also probably know that there are still a lot of state-owned enterprises and something like a quarter to, you know, maybe a third of China's economy is still accounted for by state-owned enterprises. But those enterprises have increasingly come to function like capitalist enterprises, at least with respect to, to labor relations. They still receive a lot of subsidies from the state. They still enjoy... Um, monopolies, right? So that you know they, they don't face uh, competition from other firms, at least domestically. Um, and like monopoly-based firms in capitalist countries, they offer somewhat better um, pay and somewhat better benefits to their core workforce, right? So, I mean, if you think uh, of of GM or Ford in the middle of the 20th century in the United States, or you can think about Facebook or Google today, you know, these companies that are also basically enjoy monopoly position, their core workers enjoy you know somewhat better pay, right? But the other thing that's happened is they have increasingly come to be surrounded by a very large uh, contingent of temporary and flexible workers, yeah. right? Um, and so in, in, in many of these state-owned firms, um, more than 50% of the employees are the well, what they call in China dispatch workers, right? They don't enjoy any of those same benefits. They don't enjoy the same job stabilities. Um, and they, in, in response to market fluctuations and profitability, those are always the first ones to, to be let, uh, let go, right? So, you know, the fact that they are state-owned, I think, matters to some extent, um, but when you, but it doesn't mean that the the old labor regime from you know the 1970s has kind of continued unchanged. Like they are being these firms are being subjected to market pressures, and that's reflected in how they treat labor. Yeah, and I mean that's something that like if 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 you if you listen to Xi Jinping like actually talk about what's going on, <laughs> he he just constantly every every like two speeches that he gives, there is a line about how like the the the, the economy is directed by the market and like. 
Oh, yeah. that, no, he, yeah. he's very clear about it. And yeah. in, in some ways he's, he's like very Reaganite. Like he's just yeah. like, we don't, we don't want to let these lazy people just enjoy welfare benefits. Like they believe in the power of the market to discipline people. There's no question about it. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the, the other sort of consequence of this is China's enormous migrant worker population. And that's, that's the another thing I wanted to talk about because that was another round of protest that happens in the two thousands. That's about uh, this, giant fight over household registration that I, I guess was the last kind of successful, like really mass protest thing in China. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there haven't been the same scale of, of collective protests by migrant workers, but um, you know, just as a little bit of background, you have the, the old state state owned uh, working class is kind of declining or subjected to the market pressures that, that we're talking about. And so unrest um, in that sector becomes a little bit less significant over the course of the 2000s. But that's happening at precisely the same time that the working class in the private firms is increasingly constituted by these rural to urban migrant workers. When they come to, to the cities, they are treated essentially as second-class citizens and don't have guaranteed access to all kinds of social services, healthcare, pensions, uh, education, et cetera. Um, and so there is a lot of mobilization. I mean, you know, the the HUCO household system, uh, household registration system still exists and it still has an important role in structuring people's um, uh, classed experiences. Um, but it's, it's a little bit less coercive than it used to be. So in 2003, there was this famous case, um, a migrant named uh, Sunjirgang. Um, was taken into custody, uh, as frequently happened. You know, at the time, like police would just ask people for their papers on the street if they looked suspicious. And they had a, a thing in place at the time called uh, custody and repatriation, where they would take you into custody and they would they would repatriate you back to your village, right? Yeah. So very similar, you know, to like ice raids. Um, yeah, <laughs> but against Chinese of, people. Yeah, yeah, like they had. You know, this is I, I think one of the things about. Like insofar as you can make comparisons between like the Chinese system and the Soviet system is like that. That's one of the few things that was, I think, kind of similar is that you do have these very intense. Well, okay, it's simultaneously you have these very intense like internal restrictions on migration, but also very similar to the U.S. system. It's like the, the, the economy is based on everyone breaking these things. That's right. Simultaneously, it's illegal. Yeah, 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 right, exactly. Like, we, there's no illegal immigration to the United States, but the economy would obviously collapse without undocumented workers. And it's exactly the same in China. Like, you know, they're like, we, we know that these people are here. We know that our economy, particularly in the coastal cities, is completely dependent on them. But we're still going to have cops ask you for your papers on the street. And if they don't like you, they can, you know, round you up and send you home. In this In this particular case, back in 2003, the guy they got... It's like he was the quote unquote wrong guy because he was actually a university student and they 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 detained him and um, killed him. And so when this came out and they're like, oh, they killed a, a college student. Like if had they killed a normal migrant worker, that'd be one thing. Uh, but he's a college student. So uh, so that created a big fuss. And as a result, you know, they actually got rid of of detention and repatriation, which is good. Um, there and so migrant workers today, when they're on the streets in the big cities, are are not likely to you know just have cops randomly ask them yeah. to see their papers. But they're still subjected to all kinds of of social discrimination and definitely um, you know institutional discrimination. Yeah. So okay, we're we're spe- speaking of institutional discrimination. We're going to take an ad break and then we will come back and talk <laughs> more about this. <laughs> so you know, enjoy some ads from companies who are 
probably benefiting from all of this. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So, okay, that, that's another thing that I, I, I do want to sort of, I, I guess, use this to push us forward a little bit, which is that, okay, th- this this is obviously skipping a lot of riots in 2011, but one of the big things about the COVID restrictions that I don't think people understand has been how bad it's been affecting American workers and the extent to which, you know, because one, one of the things about the household registration system is like, as best I can tell, this is this is the way a lot of like a lot of resources in terms of like, here's how you're getting food have been being distributed. And if you know, if you're in a place that's not weird, house of registration is it's like, well, OK, the state's not giving you your food. How are you going to deal with this stuff? 
and yeah they're not yeah, telling you that, that 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 that's been a big thing that like i don't know i but a lot of this has been me being upset with the media coverage of these protests because like people will just say covid zero and then not explain what the actual consequences of this are so yeah, yeah i was wondering if we could talk about sort of specifically how how the lockdowns especially as lockdowns have gone on have been affecting migrant workers and then how that's and, and I, uh, yeah okay so we'll start start there before i jump into yeah. a question with 700 parts i i mean I, I do think it's really important to understand why people are opposed to zero covid and sometimes for people outside of china they think back to the spring of 2020 when you know in the united states we had like libertarians with guns being like yeah. in the lockdown like we want our freedom like it is not that for all sorts of reasons um, and and the way to get at why it's different is to understand some of the the, the class differences that zero COVID has has entailed. And I should just say it's been pretty terrible for everybody, including rich people. And like you know, we can yeah. we can feel some sympathy for them too. Um, but but it's had some particularly nefarious consequences for for migrant workers. This became really clear in the Shanghai lockdown. It's also worth noting that there are 300 million yeah. migrant workers in China. Like, so this is not like a rounding yeah, the, error or anything. This, this is like half the population of Europe. Like yeah, that's, yeah, that's how exactly. many people we're talking about here. It's absurd. Yeah, it's, it's almost an America-sized population yeah. of, of people who are not living where their household registration is. And so the, the basic thing is, as you were just sort of saying, that when there is a lockdown and you're a migrant worker – you you kind of don't exist from the the states or you might exist but like you might also be overlooked from the perspective of the state so one very concrete way that this um screwed people over was in these hard lockdowns you're not allowed out of your house and you're dependent on uh, the neighborhood committee which is which is connected to the state it's kind of the lowest level of the state you were dependent on them for the delivery of everything that you need to survive right critically food uh, and, and medicine yeah can i want to i want to back up and say something about this yeah. this is something this is something very very different than the american lockdowns which is like well okay it it it, it, it depends on a like it, it it depends on a on on like a province by province basis like i know my family yeah. was in Inner mongolia they like in Inner mongolia like you you just you like it, the lockdown isn't like you don't go to work. The lockdown is you cannot leave your house. Like you can, yeah. you can say, I think, I think their lockdown, their first one was one person in their house once a week can leave to go get groceries. But it's like, it's not like, yeah, like it, it, it's, it's you, like you physically cannot leave. You will be, if you attempt to leave, you will be prevented from doing so. And this means that you don't really have an independent way of like getting food or like going shopping or that's right. Yeah. Like getting I don't know, like toilet paper, like yeah, no toilet paper. I mean, that yeah. resonates with uh, with Americans and our and our toilet paper shortage of 2020. But I mean, in some cases, like people would actually just be literally chained into their apartments, yeah. right? So like th this is not whatever people in 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 the U.S. or even even in parts of Western Europe, you know, where the lockdowns were a little bit more intensely policed. Like it is not that. It is a qualitatively different thing, and so. Yeah, you're completely dependent on the state. So therefore, it's really, really important that the state know that you are there and that the state feels itself to be tasked with your survival. And if you're a migrant worker, so, so one of the, the very concrete ways that this affected migrant workers is that a lot of them live in informal housing, even in the biggest cities, even in places like Shanghai and Beijing. Because those are the only places that they can live. As far as the state's concerned, like that informal housing might not exist. There are 
very, very frequently more people living in those dwellings than are sort of legally accounted for. So, you know, like there's 10 people living in an apartment that's supposed to be for, for, you know, a family of three. And so they deliver three people's worth of food, but there's actually 10 people living there. That's a subsistence crisis, right? Um, you know, the medical stuff is just a, yeah. is like oh astonishing and very harrowing. I mean, you know, just people just dying in their apartment because like they can't get insulin or, or, yeah. or all like, kinds of I, other I, things. I know, I know people whose family died because they had cancer and they couldn't get treatment for it because – Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah. So so that's that's the situation. That's one of the problems with the, for the migrant workers. And then in the very intense lockdowns, at least in, in Shanghai back in, in the uh, spring of this year – um, you know, they also can't leave. So like one option would be like, okay, well, you go back to the place where you do have your household registration, you know, back in the village and you have a piece of land and like you can survive. They couldn't leave, right? There's no transportation. Um, and so they were trapped in this situation where they couldn't work. The government wasn't, de- you know, delivering them food and they couldn't go to some place, some other place where, where they could get food. And so, uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention to these recent protests, which are extremely important and qualitatively different. But even back in, in April 2020, yeah. we saw food riots like in Shanghai, a group of group of migrant workers just like requisitioned uh, like a truck full of cabbage, you know, and just started like tossing cabbages to people on the street because people were, were like literally starving. So, I mean, yeah, so <laughs> it's a real problem for, for the migrant workers. And on that note, this has been Naked Happened here. Uh, join us tomorrow for part two of this episode where we'll be talking more about lockdowns, similar problems with migrant workers, and this all going. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.